0: Let's go to Galatians chapter 5. Bump me down a little on the speaker, son. It's a little bit hot this morning on the man there. I appreciate it. I appreciate Wesley doing that. I love the the live streaming capabilities. What a a tool to use in this day and time. Galatians chapter 5. I'm always excited to preach the Word of God. There's never an exception to that. But I'm really excited about these last two chapters of Galatians. We've already seen in the book of Galatians, the theme is our liberty in Christ. We were actually in that text this past week, which is chapter 5 and verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. As we've seen week after week, Paul is passionately writing to these Galatian believers because they have allowed false teachers, these Judaizers, to come in and teach a works-based salvation that dismisses and negates the gospel of grace. They've added works to grace uh, even to the point of telling these Gentile converts that they have to obey the Old Testament law before they can become a Christian, even telling these Gentile male converts that they have to be circumcised. And for the first, really, four chapters Paul is destroying the arguments of these Judaizers. He is uh, destroying the idea of uh, salvation by the works of the law, by your good works, and he is defending uh, justification by faith. Toward the end of chapter 4, we we saw that Paul really begins to show his pastor's heart for these Galatian believers. I mean, he wasn't just trying to win an argument. Listen, I know we live in the Facebook generation. We like to win arguments. But he was not concerned with winning an argument. He wanted, to win, he wanted to win them. He loved them. He led many of these believers to Christ. He had no doubt discipled them. He had planted the helped to plant these churches and he was upset that they were being led astray by these false teachers. He loves them deeply. And in chapter 5, and on into 6, Paul really begins to talk about the implications of what we believe about salvation. And because, once again, we've seen it over and over and over again that Paul knows how these Judaizers think, and he is getting out ahead of their next logical argument. Well, obviously, by the time he has nailed it to the wall that salvation is uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, once he's nailed that to the wall, he knows what the Judaizers are about to scream next. Okay, Paul, well, if that's true, why would anybody want to live for the Lord? Why would anybody want to do right? I mean, if you can sin and do what you want to and still go to heaven, why wouldn't you do that? That's carnal reasoning of the worst kind. And that's where the cults and the works-based systems miss it. Because they think that the only reason somebody would want to serve God is to be blessed in this life, to avoid being shunned by your peers, and to be with God instead of hell in the next life. There's nothing noble about that. But it's all about intimidation, manipulation, and control. It's what all of them do. They, They can't even process the idea that somebody may actually want to serve the Lord out of a grateful heart because they've been saved and out of that freedom they can serve Him. They they can't even process that. But we saw very clearly uh, in even the first part of chapter 5, the argument that Paul is going to make for the next two chapters is it's actually the legalists that get burnt out. Because on top of carrying the weight of their sin, now they have this man-based tradition, this religion that puts all of these check boxes in their life adds more weight to them but does not remove the weight of their sin. The most miserable person alive is a lost person who's under the bondage of false religion. Uh, They've got double the burden. Paul is going to say they're the ones that burn out, they're the ones that quit, and even the things that they do that seem right are done just for superficial reasons. There's nothing changed on the inside. See, religion can only change a person uh, so deep, only skin deep, maybe the outside, but uh, there's a conformity. Uh, There's being conformed, but it's not being reborn, and it's not being reformed. And so he's making the argument that only a true born-again Christian who has the Holy Spirit indwelling them, they're the only ones that's going to last for Jesus Christ, the ones that serve him by motivation of love. And Uh, Just by way of review, in in the last part of verse 6 there in chapter 5, it says, Faith worketh by love. That's our motivation. A love for God and a love for people. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love thy neighbor as thyself. That is our motivation. And so last week, we saw where Paul used certain words and phrases to describe the legalist under the bondage of the law. He said they were entangled with the yoke of bondage. They were a debtor to the whole law. They were fallen from grace, which we looked at that. That's not falling away from grace as if somebody could lose their salvation. They can't. That's saying they've fallen short of grace because they've trusted the law to save them. And the law can't give life. It can only bring condemnation and death. And so now in contrast to the bondage of the legalist, Uh, Now in our text today, we're going to see the freedom of those that are in Christ. And so with that in mind, let's read our text this morning. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. We'll only read a few verses this morning. Verse 13, it says, For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this... Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this day, this beautiful weather, this cooler weather. Thank you for the rain. Uh, Lord, I thank you for the the good message we've already heard. Thank you for the Sunday school teachers. And uh, Lord, just for those that are here this morning, for this church family that you put together for such time as this, be with those that are sick, uh, couldn't be here. I pray that you bless them. Uh, God, be with those that could have been here and they chose not to come for whatever reason. God, I pray that you would help them and encourage them. Uh, Lord, I do lift up Leah. Uh, she's away and sick. Lord, I pray that you touch her, God. Uh, Lord, I, I lift up uh, uh, Dan and Jean Fry. Uh, specifically, I think about them. Lord, would you bless them. Be with uh, Cindy this morning. She's not feeling well. Uh, God, I pray that you'd empty me of sin and self. Fill me, your Holy Spirit, and I pray that you would find us where we are this morning. Whether it be in this physical building or watching online, that your Holy Spirit would do a work in hearts and lives and just hide me behind the shadow of the cross, Lord, and we'll thank you and praise you for it. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen. I want to preach on the thought this morning of true freedom in Christ As I mentioned, Paul is giving a contrast from what we looked at last week, the the bondage of the legalists, the bondage of the religious laws compared with today, the true freedom of those in Christ. And in these three verses that we just read, we find three things that Christ sets us free from. Now, I'm only going to get to one of them today. I'm only going to preach one of them. We'll probably get to the other two Next week. But what are some things that the believer is freed from in Christ? What I really want to look at today is freedom from sin. That's going to be the whole message today. There's, there's three specific aspects that Christ sets us free from concerning sin. And we see the reference here in verse 13. He says, For brethren, you have been called unto liberty, which means freedom." only use not your liberty for an occasion to the flesh. That's, that's really what we're looking at this morning, that phrase, uh, an occasion to the flesh, and He has uh, freed us from that. Now now let me say this, the beauty of the gospel is not freedom to sin, but freedom from sin. You know, the, the church as a whole, I, I'll say the professing church, the false church, an overwhelming number of churches in this country and scattered throughout the world. Literally, the gospel they preach is freedom to sin. That's exactly what they preach. That is the false gospel that Jude condemned in his short book. We did four messages on the book of Jude about, you know, Galatians deals with the legalizers, but Jude deals with the liberals, those that make grace a license to sin. The gospel isn't... Freedom to sin. I, I know people that I grew up with in church. Um, I, I'm thinking of a few in my mind. I know their names and their faces. And they've recently come out, and I'm sure you know people in the same boat, have, have come out and admitting to be a homosexual and being very open about that and, and how the, you know, they feel so like a, a weight's been lifted because you know, they're finally able to be who God made them to be. You know what they've done? They bought into the gospel that says that you're free to sin and God will be okay with that. That's a false gospel. That's not being delivered from your sin. That's being delivered from your conscience. That's that's the reprobate mind at work. And listen, God can even save reprobates. Aren't you glad about that? Uh, There's no one that's outside of the grace of God, but I'm just telling you what the mindset is. That is not the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is not freedom to sin, but freedom from sin. And here, when he talks about using your liberty not for an occasion to the flesh, the word flesh, it means more than just our physical body, Uh, more than just in the flesh, like you see me this morning. And I like the way that that, uh, Thayer's put it here. The flesh is the sensuous nature of man, the animal nature. I love that. In fact, a a friend of mine was uh, showing me his Spanish Bible. And I found this interesting. Whereas in our Bible, in our English Bible, like I think in 1 Corinthians 2 is a good example of this, it talks about the natural man, which is the lost man, the fleshly person that's not saved. But in his Spanish Bible, it translated the natural man as the animal man. I found that very interesting. And the reason is because if you think about animals, they're purely instinct. Uh, They just act on instinct. Uh, You know, you don't have to teach a lion how to hunt. It's just instinct. You don't have to teach an eagle how to fly. It's just instinct. I mean, literally just within two weeks of an eagle being born, the mother basically shoves them out of the nest, and guess what? They're going to fly because it's instinct within them. And this is what Paul is talking about when he talks about the flesh or the fleshly nature, it is instinct for us to sin. Isn't that sad that that is our instinct? You don't have to teach a child how to sin. They're born into this world being selfish. It's all about them. They don't even have to speak English. Um, and you know that they've got that nature within them. You don't have to teach a child how to lie. It's amazing how they just it's just instinct. It's, it's ingrained within them. Because of Adam's sin, death came upon not only Adam, but also the entire human race. Um, Romans 5, 12, 4 is by one man, Adam. Sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for the all has sinned. We sinned in Adam. We died in Adam. And because of that, we're born as rebels against God. Our hearts are bent against God and bent toward sin. That is our instinct, and that is the fleshly nature that he's talking about. And so when we talk about being set free from the flesh, we're talking about being set free from different aspects of sin. There's three aspects of sin that Christ sets us free from when we are born again. That is the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. That's the three points this morning that we're going to look at. Uh, first of all, let's look at the penalty of sin. Um, Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Uh, death, when we think about the word death, I, I'm, a, I'm a definition guy. I mean, I really like to know what words mean, and that's certainly a great thing to do when you're studying the Bible, but death does not speak of destruction. It speak, the word literally means separation. That's, where, that's what death means. Uh, the Bible mentions two different types of deaths. The first one is the death in which our soul separates from our body. That's the first death. We've been to, we've all been to funerals. We've probably all seen an open casket. And you know as well as I do, when you're, sta- when you're staring at that body in the casket, you know that person's not there. Their soul has separated from that body. That body's nothing but a shell. That's the first death. And you know, outside of catching the rapture, uh, we're all going to face that first death. But the beauty is that even that first death is conquered because one day that body is going to get up and meet with our soul and we're going to have that glorified body. So even that's not the, the period at the end of the story. But the Bible also speaks of a second death in which a person is cast into the lake of fire, separated from the love of God for all eternity. I've often heard it said, and I I know I've said this many times, and and, uh, I think I've changed my mind on this. Uh, Somebody brought this to my attention, and I believe they're right. Uh, Those people are not separated from God for all eternity. They're separated from the love of God for all eternity, but His presence and His justice and His wrath are very much present in that situation. And so what a horrible death. Uh, We find this in... Revelation 20 and verse 15, where it talks about the great white throne judgment for all of the lost. And in Revelation 20 and verse 15, it says that whosoever was not found written in the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And I'm so glad uh, that as a saved person, I may experience the first death, but I'll have victory over that. But I'll never experience the second death. I'll never experience the flames of hell. I'll never endure the penalty of my sin. Isn't that wonderful? That's the greatest truth in the Bible. That's the greatest truth, certainly one of the greatest truths of the gospel. It's not only about that, but that certainly is a good uh, byproduct of salvation. So the, lender, the, the sinner lives a life separated from God, and they will do so for all eternity. Uh, and you could say that, the sinner, while he lives on earth, the sinner's on death row. They're living on death row, waiting for their number to be called. Uh, and so he, you could say that a sinner is dying and yet will be dead. Uh, Christ sets us free from the penalty of sin. I mentioned the first part of uh, Romans 6 and verse 23, but I'm glad there's a butt in there. Aren't you glad for those times where God butts in? It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so the wages of sin, you know, a wage is something that you earn. If you have a job, you clock in, you clock out, you earn a paycheck, whether it's weekly, bi-weekly, whatever the case may be, that is your wage that you've earned. And God says that we deserve death, we deserve torment, we deserve the lake of fire because of our sin against God. And so, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So in Christ, listen, we don't have to fear the wrath of God because the wrath of God was satisfied by Jesus Christ in our place. And we have to, when it comes to salvation, it will really make things a lot clearer if you understand that every, almost every, I won't say every aspect, but almost every aspect of our salvation is a legal term. I've, I've mentioned this in passing a few times in the past few months, but I want to hone in on it a little more so this morning. But but even the word sin is a legal term uh, in which we transgress against the law of God. We find that in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4 that all sin is a transgression of the law of God. And so when it comes to our salvation, our salvation has many legal terms that indicate just how much Christ has set us free from the penalty of our sin. In Christ, we are justified. That means to be declared legally righteous. Um, and, you know, I've heard it said that uh, justification is just as if I had never sinned. It's a cute saying, and it's easy to remember, and it, it is half right. I'm not going to say it's wrong, but it doesn't tell the whole story. Because we're not just being declared innocent as if we've never done anything wrong. We're declared perfectly righteous as if we had lived the same life that Jesus Christ did. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, I've heard it said that when Christ was on the cross, that God the Father treated Christ as if He had lived our life. That's what we deserve. But because of what Christ did on our behalf, He looks at us as if we, we had lived the life that Jesus Christ lived. And so that is the truth of imputed righteousness to us. That is what justified means to be declared legally righteous. And so without that uh, legal pardon, a, a sinner will spend their life as a fugitive on the run from the justice of God. And in the next life, they will spend an eternity under the judgment of God. Now... Even the religious practices and good works will be nothing more than a mask and a fake identity in an attempt to escape the coming judgment of God. A, a work salvation, a, a cult, or something of that nature, all they're doing is hiding themselves. They're masking themselves on the run from the judgment of God because no acts of obedience can take away disobedience. I thought about another term, propitiation, which means unappeasing and you know, a lot of people don't like that word. I mean, one of the big things in theological circles right now, I mean, it's, not, it's nothing new, but it seems like in recent years it's really gained traction. And that is to attack the idea of a uh, propitiation or, or a substitutionary atonement in which Christ actually took upon Himself the wrath of God in our place. People don't like that. The, and... and uh, I've heard people attack the term propitiation. They said, "Well, it can't mean an appeasing because that makes God like one of the pagan gods, where you know he's just so angry and he has to have his wrath appeased." Let me. There's a, there's some glaring differences there. First of all, the pagan gods aren't real; they don't exist. Second of all, the pagan gods were arbitrary; they could get mad for anything they wanted to on any given day. God is not arbitrary. His judgments are always right and He's unchanging in His justice. And so His justice requires a sacrifice or a punishment. And if Christ had not taken the punishment for our sin, then none of us could be saved. So I absolutely believe in it. The word propitiation means unappeasing specifically of God's wrath and justice. Uh, 1 John uh, chapter 4 and verse 10 says, Herein is love. Not that we love God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. He is the appeasement. That's a legal transaction in which somebody else takes the punishment for what you did. Uh, Atonement is another legal term. It means an exchange. Uh, The atonement is known as the great exchange. It is the innocent dying in the place of the guilty. And I think probably the greatest single atonement verse in the Bible has to be Second Corinthians 5 and verse 21. And he hath made him, talking about Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Uh, Romans 5 and verse 11 says, We also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. I thought about redemption. That's another great legal term. I like what Thayer says about redemption. Uh, redemption is a releasing or liberation affected by payment of a ransom. Uh, Colossians 1 and verse 14 says, In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin. And now, a great example of redemption. I love this illustration. It's a, a true story. It's happened in history and it's quite possible it happens around the world today, but I know for a fact that it happened in America during the time of the slave trade. But sometimes wealthy abolitionists would buy slaves off of the auction block just to give them their papers and set them free. Uh, That was redeeming them. They bought their freedom back. And what's beautiful about this is many times these slaves, I mean, they came from another country. A lot of them weren't great with the language. A lot of them couldn't read. You know, it had been really difficult for them to get a job. And so, it, you know, getting their freedom in a situation like that wasn't exactly the greatest news ever. And so in many cases, uh, the, the slave that was set free by this wealthy abolitionist, they would surrender themselves to him in willing service to that person. Isn't that an amazing thing? That is exactly what happens when Christ redeems us from sin, from the auction block of sin. He sets us free. He paid a price, his own blood. But then adoption is another good legal term. Uh, Adoption is a legal transaction in which a child is transferred from one family to another. And I've heard it said, and I know it's true, there's three ways into a family. Birth, adoption, and marriage. And we're in the family of God all three ways. We've been born again by the Spirit of God. We've been adopted by God. And we've been married. We're the bride of Christ, aren't we? Isn't that a beautiful picture? I thought about what Ephesians 1 and verse 5 said, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. And for those who are in Christ, we used to be children of the devil. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 that we were by nature the children of wrath. But Christ in His... Great and rich mercy, He set us free from the penalty of sin. Listen, I know a lot of people that they really do fear death. They fear dying. But we don't have to fear death. If you're saved, you don't have to fear death or wrath or judgment. Christ has set us free from the penalty of sin. Um, Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, or truly, truly is what that means, He that heareth my word... And believeth on him that sent me, hath present tense, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is present tense, past from death unto life. Now, for those that would argue that you can lose your salvation, what do you do with a verse like that? Eternal life is not just something that you get to go to when you die, eternal life is a present possession. John 17 and verse 3 says this is life eternal, that we know Him. (laughs) Knowing God is eternal life. So uh, eternal life is obviously an eternal state, but it's a present possession. That's why the Lord says you'll never come into condemnation because you are passed from death unto life. How can you lose eternal life? It's a contradiction in terms. It's not temporary life. It's not conditional life. It's eternal life. And no man can pluck us out of his hands. And, you know, somebody would say, well, that's true, but you can let go if you want. Listen, no, 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 no. It didn't say you're holding on to his hand. It says he's holding on to yours and nobody can pluck you out of his hand. It's impossible. You can't become unborn again. You can't do that. I know that's probably not proper grammar. But it, it gets the point across. And also, if you lose your salvation, you can't become born again again. You can't do it. We're secure in Christ. You know, we mentioned that sinners are both dying and dead, but the saved are both alive and will live forevermore. Eternal life, as I said, is a present possession and a future state. And we can know beyond any shadow of a doubt that we have been set free from the penalty of sin through Jesus Christ. 1 John 5 and verse 13 says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. 1 John was written to believers. It was addressed to my little children. And there at the end of the letter in chapter 5, he says, These things have I written that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, if you can't know that you have it, And you can't know that you'll always have it. What's the comfort in that? What's the point of even writing that? And so for all the things we don't know, for all the prayers even in my own life that that seem to go unanswered, for all the things that I don't know, for all the things that we face, that, that there's just no change in the situation. I go to bed every night knowing that if I died in my sleep, I would wake up with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven because of what He did. Jesus is enough. It's not Jesus plus something, and it sure ain't Jesus minus something. It's just Jesus, and He's enough. I'm thankful for that. He sets us free from the penalty of sin. And so, before I move on to these last two points, I really want you to ask yourself this question and have it settle in your mind. Have you been saved from the penalty of your sin? I mean, I'm not trying to be a doubtcaster. And I'm not trying to play on your emotions and make you afraid. But God forbid if you died today, if something happened and you didn't even make it to your bed tonight, do you know beyond any shadow of doubt that you're saved and that you have been born again by the Spirit of God, that you have repented and put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you? If not, listen, today is the day of salvation. We're not even promised tomorrow. But what a great comfort and peace to know that we're saved from the penalty of sin. But then the second thing, not only does Christ set us free from the penalty of sin, but He sets us free from the power of sin. There in verse 13, just to reiterate, He says, For brethren, you have been called unto liberty, only use not your liberty for an occasion to the flesh. Um, John 8 and verse 34, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. That that word servant comes from the Greek word doulos. It really uh, means slave. Uh, he that committeth sin is the slave of sin, getting back to the nature of the flesh and the instinct, the sinful instinct of the flesh. Now, now Christ, as I said, sets us free from the power of sin. Now this is very important to point this out. And I really want to hammer this down because... There's a lot of confusion about this. You see, I want you to understand, there's a difference between justification and sanctification. And the problem with all the cults and all the works-based systems is they conflate justification and sanctification. Now, when you're saved, positionally, you're completely justified, sanctified, you know, all those eyes except glorified. We get that later. Uh, We're going to talk about that in a minute. But... Um, Anyway, sanctification means to be set apart, and I've mentioned this before, I'm not going to really park it here, but we're sanctified positionally at the moment we're saved. That never changed. I'm fully sanctified in that sense. Then there's the the process of sanctification where throughout the course of our life, uh, He that begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, or as the old song says, He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be, we're constantly decreasing and He's increasing. That's a lifelong process. And surely, if you've been saved for any length of time, you can see some things that God has given you victory over, things He's taken from you, things areas that He's grown you. I, I mean, I'm to be honest. I've been saved since I was 14. I'm 37. So I've, I've been saved longer than I've not been saved on this earth. And so it's a, that's a miracle to me. Uh, to think about that. Uh, but there's things that I have changed so drastically on since I was a young Christian. And uh, he's given me victory. He's grown me in some areas. You know, my doctrine's changed in some areas. My, my my standards have changed in areas. And there's even some areas I used to think, bless God, was compromise, and now I just see it as Christian maturity. And I'm sure we could probably all say that. Um, he gives us victory over th- some things, and I hope that there's things in your life that you could say that about then there's perfect sanctification in heaven when we get our glorified body. We'll talk about that <clears throat> in a minute. Um, but sanctification means to be set apart. <clears throat> and when somebody gets saved, I believe there's two ditches we can get into. On the one end, there's this crowd, the, the sinless perfectionist crowd, that says that if you're really saved, that, uh, or if you are really, really got that you know, second blessing, sanctification, some of the holiness crowd calls it that, that uh, you'll get to a certain plateau where you, you won't sin again. That is absolute nonsense. And you know it as soon as you frame the, cre- the question in the right way. I love messing with sinless perfectionism. I, you run into them on the street a lot. There's actually quite a few street preachers that are sinless perfectionists. And, I, and I, they always talk about that. And I said, so, you're telling me you're as sinless and as holy as God is? When you frame the question... In the right way, it lets them know how foolish it really is. And then I have met some people that actually said yes. But for the most part, when they hear it like that, there's just something inside you. You just can't utter those words because you know it ain't true. You got any sense in your head, you know you ain't as holy as God is. You ain't as righteous as God is. And if you think you're all, I'll just ask your spouse and they'll clear it all up for us. (laughs) In fact, I pulled that card too. I said, so if I ask your wife, is she going to say the same thing? You're holy and sinless. and per- It's silly, folks. Silly. But <clears throat> on the other end is this extreme where, you know, pretty much all you have to do is, is say a prayer, you know, one, two, three, repeat after me. And, you know, as long as you say the prayer, you know, you're saved and you're good. And, you know, there, ha- there doesn't have to be any fruit in your life at all. If you prayed the prayer and you have a mental assent to the facts of the gospel, you're saved. That's nonsense too, friend. Listen, salvation without repentance is the faith of devils. It's the same faith that the devils had in the book of James where he says, even the devils believe and they tremble. They know there's a God. The devils know mentally there's a God. They have not submitted to that Lord. You cannot get Christ as Savior without submitting to Him as Lord. There's a big attack against that theology today too, but they're wrong. I've got Bible for it. That's why the very first word that Jesus ever preached... Now think about this. This had been planned from eternity past, that Jesus Christ comes to the earth born of a virgin, lived as a God-man. He never did anything in the ministry, and He never did a miracle until the perfect time, about 30 years old. And when He steps up to the plate, the, the incarnate Word, God incarnate is getting ready to preach His first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount... What would be the first word that he utters? You know what it was? Repent. Very first word that Jesus preached. We got this crowd now, even in Baptist churches, this free grace crowd, this easy believism crowd that says, Oh, you don't have to repent to be saved. Jesus thought you did. Paul preached it. Peter preached it. Who are we to say? John the Baptist preached it. Oh, we don't have to preach that anymore. You see, here's the problem, and this is not even my notes, so I won't say this and i move on. Here's the problem with that crowd. They think repentance is something that we do. And if it's something just that we do, then yes, it is a work and we can't completely do it. But if repentance is something God does in us, it's a totally different ballgame then. And according to the Bible, repentance is a gift from God that He grants us repentance that saves us out of the snare of the devil. That's exactly what the Bible says. And so, yes, God commands it, but God performs it too. And so, understand those two ditches there. But really, the Christian life, you know, when God saves us, he ta- I believe He takes things from us immediately. He did in my life. But there's other things, man, He just has to take it out over time. And sanctification <laughs> is a rough process. It really is, especially if you're stubborn like me. And um, But I-, I love what, uh, I believe it was Spurgeon They said the Christian life is not about perfection, it's about direction. I love that. Yes, I'm not perfect, but I promise you I'm going a different direction than I used to. I may even slip and fall from time to time, but I'm still going in a different direction. That's what the Christian life is. It's not about perfection, it's about direction. And as far as being saved from the power of sin, yes, we still have battles in this fleshly body, But sin doesn't have dominion over us like it used to. Romans 6 and verse 14, it says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. So we do have that battle between the Spirit and the flesh. We're going to see more of that in the coming weeks. But um, while this battle can be exhausting, uh, it is encouraging because prior to salvation, there was never a struggle. Uh, You know, I've had people through the years come up to me and they said, uh, Pastor Vaughn, I'm just struggling. Like I, I'm kind of doubting my salvation. I said, Well, on on the basis of what? And they said, Well, I'm just I'm just struggling against sin. And I said, Let me ask you this: Did you struggle with sin before you got saved? They said, No, I just lived in it. I said, Well, there you go. So it can be encouraging that we struggle with sin. That listen, that welcome to the Christian life. That is, it's a never-ending battle <laughs> between flesh and spirit. And so, yeah, before you got saved, there was never a struggle. You just gave in. That's just, it was your instinct. And, and so the question is, and this is so important, how do we win these battles over temptation? Well, there's there's two key things that I want you to know, and we'll get on our last point and I'll be done. But if you're going to win the battle, this is, listen, this is for young Christians, older, more mature Christians. There's two things that you're going to have to recognize if you're going to defeat temptation in your own life, the first thing is you're going to have to remove the hindrances and the temptations in your life. You know, one thing about living the Christian life, it's very practical. And what kills me is, and I I just, I'll use the illustration of trying to lose weight. You know, there's some people out there that, I mean, they never do anything. They don't change their diet. They're, They're getting, you know, Big Macs and, large fries and apple pies and Diet Coke, like that's going to do any good at that point. And, you know, listen, I'm not throwing rocks. I've got a mirror up here, okay? Um, But they don't exercise. They they do nothing to try to accomplish the goal of losing weight. And they walk around and play the martyr like, I just don't understand why I can't lose any weight. And I'm thinking, you want some suggestions, you know? (laughs) I mean, let's just be real here, folks. Let's be practical about this, you know? Well, it's the same thing we live in the Christian life. We we kind of get super spiritual and we think, well, you know, God's just going to zap me with holiness and sanctification and, you know, it's just going to come through this lightning bolt that hits me in the hands. I mean, it's just not like that. Yes, we have the indwelling Spirit. Yes, He changes us. Uh, yes, there's things that He does that we have nothing to do with. There's no doubt about that. But when it comes to the process of sanctification, is as far as our part goes, it's very practical. And the first thing that we have to remember is to remove the hindrances and temptations in our life. We know our weaknesses and so does Satan. Now think about what Romans 13 and verse 14 says. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Exactly what I'm talking about. Remove yourself from the temptation. You know, the, the most wise Christians don't think that they've got a superpower to where they're expected to overcome all this temptation, they got enough wisdom to just stay away from the temptation. Why? Why even play with fire? Why? Why play with snakes? Why would you want to do that? Um, I, I think about two specific examples in my mind. One of them kind of humorous, and one of them actually really good. One of my best friends growing up—I mean, just as saved as I was at the time—but he, you know, he somebody gave him uh, dip tobacco at like age thirteen. and He got hooked on it. And I know that doesn't do great for our Alabama stereotype, but it just is what it is. And, you know, he would always... It was always like Skull, Wintergreen, or Copenhagen. He always had something in that bottom lip. And we were riding around one day, and he said, you know, I i finally gave diffin to the Lord. He said, I, I repented of that. I'm asking God to help me. And I'm like, you know, that's, that's great. I'm so glad to hear that. So a few minutes later, we pull up at the gas station. He gets out and pump gas, and I get out and stretch my legs, you know. And I look... And I noticed he's got that skull ring in the back pocket of his jeans. And I said, I thought you gave that up. He said, oh, that's just for emergencies. (laughs) So, (laughs) needless to say, he had a lot of emergencies, you know. And, um, you know, I'm not throwing rocks in that situation. I just, um, he couldn't kick it until he finally just got away from it. Um, Another example, I had a man in our church, not, not this church, but had a man come to me and admitted to me that he struggled with pornography. He said it just I, I, I'm addicted to it. He said I I was exposed to it at a young age. He said I just never could get away from it. He said, "But I I just really want to defeat this in my life. How do I how do I get victory over this?" And I said, "Well, the first thing you're going to have to do is you're going to have to get rid of the source of how you view pornography." And I said, "If it's, I know this sounds crazy in the world in which we live. You know, we y'all realize we we only had smartphones since 2007. And somehow we survived without them before that. I mean, we had Rand McNally nap, maps and, uh, you know, we had to use a phone book. I know, man, I sound old when I talk like that. But but I said, if you watch it on the phone, you need to get rid of the phone. Get, get rid of a, you know, get like a burner phone where all you have is calls and texts. Get rid of it. Just, I mean, it's right there in your pocket. It's always there. He said, well, I, I don't really do it on the phone. He said... Um, I don't have a good internet plan, but he, he said, um, I watch it on a computer in my room. And I said, we need to get rid of it. Do something with it. I don't know what you need to do, but get, get it away from you. So, like next week, he walks in my office with a computer and stacked it on my desk. I, I got a new computer out of the deal, and so uh, I'm, I wasn't doing it for that, but I will say this. My Chromebook just broke, so if anybody's got a problem, we're, we're taking computers right now. So, but uh, but he did... he. He was able to overcome that because he got rid of the source. If it's always there, you're eventually going to lose. Also, once again, going back to Spurgeon, I think that guy said everything, didn't he? But uh, he once said that if you have temptation and no opportunity, there's no sin. Or if you have opportunity and no temptation, there's no sin. But if you get temptation and opportunity together, it will conceive sin every time. You can't always control the temptation, but you can control the opportunity. That's what you have to do. And eventually, you'll have victory over that thing. Um, Hebrews 12.1 tells us, this is important too, that if we're going to run the race that Christ has called us to run, we must remove both the sin and the weight that does so easily beset us. This is interesting to me. Because he makes a difference between sinful things and weighty things that may not be sinful. Now, we often, we often focus on <clears throat> sin, and that's a good thing. But sometimes I don't think we focus on the weights enough that hinder us from running the race like we're supposed to. And understand, listen, I have not arrived. I'm far from a perfect Christian. I'm still growing today, and I'll tell you a specific example of some sanctification that's taking place in my life right now. I just, I mean, very recently, I had to ask God to forgive me because I had developed such a habit of being on my phone. Like, it was just subconscious. I didn't even think about it. I'd be pulling up, you know, social media or just, just it's just mindless, just, I don't even think about it. And I got to thinking about how much time I waste on that thing. And honestly, I'm being honest, I like Facebook because, you know, it lets us keep up with folks over in Alabama and and around the world, and it's a great opportunity to put the gospel out there or or convey a message, but man, I I didn't realize how much it was stressing me out because I'm just allergic to stupid, and there's a lot of it on there, and somebody has wisely said, I don't don't know if Facebook has ever caused the lame to walk, but it sure has allowed the dumb to speak, you know, and... uh, so I did. I had to ask God to help me. And I, I made God a promise that I was only going to look at my social media three times a day. That's it. That's all I get, three times a day. And I made, I made another promise that if I could not handle that, that I was just going to get rid of my social media apps. And I've done well with it. And I'm happier. And my stress level is better. I mean, it's, life is just so... I, I feel like I've been detoxed from that. And so... Uh, I mean, I, I feel the tension in the room right now, like I, I feel like I 'm plowing we just need to drop the plow and go a little longer with that, I guess. But uh, I really honestly, I'd say I if we ever get to the judgment seat of Christ and the Lord shows us in detail how much time we wasted doing stuff like that, we 're going to feel about that big. Um, weights can be those things that aren 't necessarily sinful, but they hinder us. Um, we could talk about a lot of those things. But if we're ever going to have victory over temptation, we must make steps to remove ourselves from the temptation. Uh, So if we're going to conquer temptation, we have to remove the hindrances and temptation in our life. The second thing is we're going to have to renew our minds with the right things. Listen, I, I kind of grew up in a religion of don't. But there has to be more than just don't. Like, if I just stand up here and say, don't do this, don't think this, don't go there, like, that's not enough. We have to replace the wrong things with the right things. We have to replace the wrong thoughts with the right thoughts. And and so it's not just enough to stop doing stuff or or stop thinking certain things. We must replace them with good things. And so how do we do that? Well, going back to an illustration that Derek used in Sunday school a few months back, is just so good, I thought, about being Spirit-filled. It's not necessarily something we can do. I mean, I can't, I can't go to the refrigerator and get the bottle of the Holy Spirit. I can't do that. That's God has to do that. But on our part, there are certain things that we can do to be conducive to that. And the illustration he used was going into a bakery and just the smells that just flood your nostrils when you go into a bakery and all the good smells and the cinnamon rolls and the pastries and all of those wonderful things. Well, when you leave there, your clothes smell like that bakery, doesn't it? Now, you didn't technically do anything, but you were in an environment that just kind of stuck to you. That's what we have to do is... Uh, not only get rid of the bad, separate ourselves from the bad, but we have to uh, include ourselves and involve ourselves in the good. Be faithful to church. You know, Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Listen, uh, the, the Sunday night crowd and Wednesday night crowd knows I'm just nicer on Sunday night and Wednesday nights. I don't know what, maybe I'm just tired. We're getting toward the end of the day I'm just meaner on Sunday morning. I don't. I'm just. I don't know what it is. I'm just cantankerous. My coffee hadn't done the job. I don't know, but uh, I'm just. I'm nicer. I think you know. And and we're going through Old Testament books on Sunday night. We're going through Revelation on Wednesday night. I would encourage you just to be faithful. You know, be be plugged into that. But in your own time, be faithful to spend time in the Word of God and be around Christians who are going to provoke you to good works and set aside some time for the Lord in prayer. Every day, and, and and make worship an intentional practice. And through these things, listen, we can have victory over sin in our life. Again, not perfection, but direction. And even the language in Galatians five and verse thirteen, he says, "Brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not your liberty for an occasion to the flesh." So that even even the way that's worded, it says you can take it or leave it. You don't have to do it. You don't have to be dominated by that. You're not a slave to sin anymore. Um, And remember, this is so important. When it comes to the battle of the flesh and the spirit, whichever one you feed is going to win. Garbage in, garbage out. Or godly in, godly out. Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 21, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing... And making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God, we can enjoy the abundant life of Christ, free from the de- domination of sin in our lives. And I'll say this too, and I'm, I'm really coming in for a landing here. But, you know, I liken it unto this in my own life. There was a time as a teenager, you not. Know, I said, I got, I got saved at the age of 14. And so I can say some of the worst things I've ever done in my life was after I got saved. I'm, a, I'm ashamed to say that. But I was not a perfect Christian. I did stupid things. I, I allowed myself to be in situations I shouldn't have been in. I got in the wrong crowd from time to time. And there was a time there, about 17 years old, it wasn't a long time. You know, as a Christian, you can definitely sin, but you can't enjoy it while you're there. And uh, I got away from the Lord. Had some things going wrong in my family and in my life, and just I was just angry, and uh, ended up, you know, started drinking with my friends and stuff like that. And and I can tell you this: when we were out there in the woods, on that sitting on that tailgate, we weren't listening to uh, gospel music. We weren't listening to Amazing Grace or any of these major choirs. We were listening to Hank Williams Jr. and you know, all my ratty friends have settled down, all that. Because they were singing about the things we were doing. They were, at that time, speaking our language. And listen, I'm not the type of person to make an inanimate object like music totally evil. All of it is not. But you need to listen to the message that's been conveyed there. Because that stuff works its way into your heart and into your mind. And it's just, man, I tell you, it has an effect on you. And... um, And so we need to take heed to what we feed. Um, So we need to renew our mind and to remove ourselves from temptations, uh, situations. Third thing, I I told you that Christ frees her from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, last thing I'm done, very short here, the presence of sin. Now, our bodies have not been redeemed yet. We still struggle with this old Adamic nature. And certainly this world has not yet been redeemed, not yet anyway. But in Christ, we can never be brought back under the penalty of sin. We can never lose our salvation. As a child of God, He will never punish us as a judge. He will discipline us as a father. And in Christ, we don't have to be under the power of sin. We've seen that. But while in this body and in this world, we can never escape the presence of sin. Never. It's here. It's... it's, You can't get away from it. But that's one of the beauties of heaven, that we'll get a new glorified body and be in a new...